Welcome to the Startup of the Year podcast, where each episode we showcase exciting new companies from around the world. This podcast is produced by Established, creators of the Startup of the Year program. Established is focused on helping organizations with their innovation, startup, and communication strategies. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Startup of the Year podcast. I'm Frank Gruber, the co-founder and co-CEO of Established. We're the team behind Startup of the Year, and we're also managing established ventures. On this episode, I'm talking with Sunil Gupta. Sunil teaches innovation at Harvard University and is the author of the book Backable. The book is rooted in Sunil's journey from a first-time entrepreneur to being named a new face of innovation by the New York Stock Exchange and explores, explores how to get people to believe in your ideas, which is super important for anyone out there with ideas. Uh, Sunil's ideas have been backed by firms like Greylock, Google Ventures, and has served. he served as an entrepreneur in residence uh, inside Kleiner Perkins. And uh, he's personally backed startups, which include Impossible Foods, Airbnb, 23andMe, Calm, and SpaceX. In 2019, Sunil established the Gross National Happiness Center of, of America in partnership with the Kingdom of uh, Bhutan. And uh, wow, pretty amazing <laughs> resume in general. So excited to, to talk with him. Uh, before we jump on, though, with this interview, I wanted to share some thoughts for, and advice from our uh, our own Rich Malloy, who's the VP of Engagement at Established and part of Established Ventures. He's got some ideas and thoughts and tips for startups founders out there with a segment called VC Minute. This is Rich Malloy with Established Ventures, bringing you the VC Minute. Quick advice to help startup founders fundraise better. Let's talk about being too early. I talked to a founder the other day who was frustrated by being continually told he was too early. It's especially frustrating when you know the people you're hearing this from actively invest in companies at your stage. But an investor saying you're too early is not the whole story. There are, of course, cases where you are actually too early. But you can vet this quickly with an investor by asking direct questions early in the meeting, such as, do you invest pre-revenue? Do you invest at my stage? What do you look for in companies at my level? With those questions, you'll know if you are actually too early, and even better, you'll know what points you need to talk to in your presentation. So when you are talking to an investor that writes checks at your level, they're telling you that you're too early. Here's the real problem. You haven't sold them on your vision. Mike Maples from Floodgate says that great founders are time travelers. And I love this. And I'm going to paraphrase his explanation and riff on it a little bit. You have to come from the future and tell the present day investor what the world is like with your product at full scale. How have you changed people's lives? And as importantly, what are the inflection points that bring your future into existence? When you sell the vision, you'll have an investor who wants to bring that world into existence with you. Even if you technically are too early, then you'll have a strong lead for your next round. The earlier you are, the stronger you need to sell the vision. Even with traction, you still need to sell the vision. So take a minute, time travel to the future, look at the world around you, and tell me what it's like. That's all for the VC Minute. Back to you, Frank. Thanks, Rich. Great tips as always. As many of you know, we're going to be holding our longstanding tradition of heading down to Austin, Texas every March, but this year doing it online again. 
as we'll be hosting some events around uh, the things happening for around South by Southwest. Uh, these events will be happening uh, March 15th and 16th, and then we'll be doing some other festivities around it as well. If you want more information, go to est.us forward slash SXSW21. Again, est.us forward slash SXSW21 in any browser, and you'll find out more. You can register and, and learn more about what we're doing down there, which is basically going to be in your home because it'll all be online. Finally, aside from our March event, I wanted to take a moment to invite all of our listeners to get involved in our programs by uh, visiting establish.us forward slash programs. Again, it's establish.us forward slash programs on the internet. Uh, you'll find out more about the different uh, various uh, partner organizations we work with and we are, as we look to offer startup opportunities for anyone out there through these different organizations. So check it out and uh, sign up. Okay, now with our conversation with Sunil, uh, which was part of our Startup of the Year Summit in the fall of 2020. Let's listen in. Welcome, Sunil. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's good to, hey, it's good to be here, Frank. You know, it's funny hearing you speak and watching all the things you've built kind of reminds me why I wrote this book in the first place, Backable, because exceptional people like you, Frank, they're not just talented, they're rackable. So, and you are, you are proof of that. I appreciate the kind words and uh, thank you so much for doing this. And so let's let's just dive in. So from yeah. startups to the political trail, you know, you've had both the failure and success, but you know, but both with both. And I wanted to kind of kick it off and 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 if you could share like kind of a little bit about the early years and how you how you kind of grew up and what sort of influenced you in the early stage to kind of go this direction. Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in suburban Michigan, uh, where I actually am right now after about uh, 10 years of living in, in San Francisco and, and before that living in Chicago, um, you know, I, d- I decided to come back home. And, and as you mentioned, I, I ran I ran for Congress. And after losing that election, I decided to stay here. Um, but, you know, lo- losing for me has never been sort of a, um, you know, it, it's nothing new. And I think one motto that I, I try to live by is that the opposite of success is not failure. It's boredom. <laughs> I like that. That's so, so true. And so <laughs> yep. if, I can, if I can be doing things that, that, that make me come alive, and clearly, Frank, you're doing things that make you come alive, I don't think it's really possible to, to lose, at least not in the conventional sense. And of course, you know, we may not reach our intended destination, um, but I think that if you're on the, on the right mountain, um, you're going to touch and teach people along the way, including yourself. Um, and I, I very much feel that way about my career. But no, yeah. no stranger, no stranger to failure at all. And uh, you know, in fact, uh, what really got me inspired to write this book was that I had I had gone out and tried a few different ideas, and I failed at them. And uh, and I was invited to speak at a conference that you might know about called FailCon, mm-hmm. which stands for Failure Conference. And it was one of their first conferences. And and so the New York Times happened to be in the audience. And I, I, I had no idea that they were there. And so I'm up on stage and I'm speaking about failure. I'm speaking about all these things that I failed at. And little do I know that they're actually writing this big profile piece on failure. And as it turns out, they use my photo as the cover for this piece. Wow. And so, and so this was a few years ago when it came out. It was, like, it was 2014. And literally, if you would have at that time, that, that piece went viral. And if you would have, if literally, if that time you would have Googled failure, if you would have searched for failure, my image, my face was literally the top result. Wow. Yeah. Um, but what I decided to do was use that article as an icebreaker. 
to start reaching out to people who ordinarily I was having a very tough time getting in front of. And so I, what I started to do is saying that article out to people saying, hey, as you can see from this article, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I was hoping, but I was hoping, <laughs> I was hoping maybe we could grab coffee and, uh, you know, and, 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 and you could give me some advice. And it was just this wonderful, it was a wonderful icebreaker because, you know, as, as I think people have put far more eloquent than, eloquently than me, people like Brene Brown have now unpacked all of this and told us that when you are vulnerable with others, they will be vulnerable with you. And the type of human connection that you can develop with somebody when you're not trying to um, you know, spitball your resume, but instead talk about the things that didn't go right. Uh, you can just develop a much stronger human connection. Yeah, no, I love that. Wow. You really owned it. And I think it obviously works. Uh, that's a great, great advice for anybody that's, um, it is out there. I mean, I think that there's just been such a negative connotation with failure, but you know, you do something long enough, you're eventually going to be successful, right? I mean, that's the thing you're going to learn and iterate and that's the whole startup journey. Right. So, all right, let's, yeah. let's dive into, um, getting into some of your background. So, you, um, and we'll speed through, we're not going to go every year here, but you, you got into tech, right. And you, you did some things with, um, like I mentioned in the intro here, Mozilla and, uh, Mozilla and Groupon. And how did that shape, um, and, you know, shape your kind of current, um, situation, but also spark your entrepreneurial interest? Yeah. Yeah. He was so, you know, I got interested in going into tech, um, through a very abnormal route. I was actually in law school, uh, at Northwestern university and, I was about to accept uh, a job at a, at a law firm in, in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, was my, I met my, my, my girlfriend, who now my, my wife at the time. And, you know, she was from New York and, and, and the plan was to go to New York and, and, and take this job. And right before I signed the offer, I started to, to, to get this feeling that I was sort of headed in a direction that I didn't want to be headed in. Um, and it was, a, it, was a, it, was, it was a really sort of confusing moment for me because I got to be honest with you, the money was fantastic. The signing bonus was was more than I had been making before I went to law school in a, in, in, in a given year, but I just felt like um, it wasn't it wasn't the right fit, and so I decided to 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 not do that. And instead, I started taking trips out to Silicon Valley um, and just starting to meet with companies out there. Uh, I was cold calling. I didn't know uh, people. Um, but I started cold calling folks and eventually uh, landed a couple of uh, a couple of interviews. And the, one of the companies that really interested me was Mozilla. And part of the reason for that was because I really saw it as this this hybrid of activism and tech. Right. You had you had people who who I think really um, you know in a lot of ways appealed to the the political side of me, the policy progressive side of me. Um, but at the same time, they were they were they were activists through their lines of code. And I, I really wanted to learn from them. So I ended up taking a legal job or a job that would require legal work there. I took the California bar and, and, oh, and, and took that job there. But uh, I just found myself attracted to the other side of the building where yep. they were designing stuff, where they were, where they were, where they were you know, making stuff. And I was just this annoying, you know, quote unquote, business guy who was kind of looking over people's shoulders saying, Hey, what's, what's that do? And what's that do? And eventually I think they kind of just got tired of that and said, you know, why don't, why don't you take a piece of work and go work <laughs> on that? And so I did. And, and what that piece of work was, which, which, you know, I didn't know at the time was, was a product feature. And mm -hmm. I just, I just, you know, um, did the work of getting this thing, you know, to a point of getting shipped. It was a product called personas, 
which allowed you to change the look and feel of your Firefox browser. Pretty basic feature. Remember that? Yeah. 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 It was a fun, it was a fun product. You know, we got some cool partnerships out of it and, and, you know, ultimately that ended up being, you know, just shipping something, just getting something done and shipped. All of a sudden people were like, all right, here's another one. And so that was my transition from, from being a lawyer to being a product manager. And once I got the taste of being a product manager, being, you know, somebody who could collaborate with, with people who are far smarter and more creative than, than me, but, but being part of their world, I thought to myself, look, I, this, is, this is it for me, man. I, 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 gotta, I have to do more of this. That okay. led to the Groupon role, and, and that really led to my, my, my sort of path down the entrepreneurial journey. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to, you know, really good communication skills and be able to like bring people together from all sides. Cause I mean, I did this in the role of product where, you know, you're yeah. talking to developers, right. And you're talking to the, to the folks yeah. that you're talking to your customers and you're trying to figure out how do I get all these people on the same page, you know, in the same time zone and everything. And I'm assuming with Mozilla, there was probably multiple time zones too. And, and in real life, and yeah. so, yeah, it's definitely um, probably your skills from, from, from your legal side, like kind of kicked in or like, wow, I can communicate to all these people. So that's really interesting. You know, what's funny, man, is you, you might be the first person that's ever sort of brought that up, but it's very true. You know, in law school, I still remember one of the first papers that I ever submitted. I got a terrible, I think I got like a C minus or something on it. And I went to the professor and I'm like, what, what happened? And, and, and what she pointed out to me was that I had done a fine job arguing my own point of view. But what I had not done is I had not put myself in the opposing counsel's shoes and argued their point of view. Right. What an effective lawyer will do is they will argue their own point of view. Then they will take the other, they'll put the other person's hat on and they'll argue their point of view. And then they'll talk about how their point of view is better. They'll compare and contrast. But unless you can put yourself in the opposing counsel's view, you're never going to be an effective lawyer. And, and that was, that was, that was a lesson I had to learn in law school. And then when I went to the product world, what you're saying is absolutely right. I mean, what you are doing is you are putting yourself in the shoes of people who may have different interests than you that, that, you know, in in this case, we're not opposing each other, but it's very important to have that level of empathy of like, look, if I'm sitting in this person's shoes, if I, this is where I am, I'm in the Midwest, I'm buying a product. This is what I'm going through. What am I thinking at this moment? And so those skills did come in handy. Yeah, I'm definitely know, and I've been in that seat too. So I know that there's a lot of different players there trying to get there, you know, and, and sometimes it's over the funniest thing. It's, it's literally over like a, the way a button shaped or the way, a, you know, cause you've got the, the user interface folks and you've got the, the developers who want it this way. And the, you know, there's everyone's a designer all of a sudden, you know, so <laughs> everybody is right. Yeah, exactly. So interesting, really interesting analogy. I mean, to tie it together together. So let's talk about your startups now. Let's talk about, um, rise and, and, and what, what was that and how did that get going? And, um, Maybe share that story a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, I, you know, at that point in time, when I started Rise, I'd spent a few years at Mozilla. I had spent a few years at Groupon. Groupon had gone public. And what I realized is that I was starting to get pretty decent at understanding the consumer experience. I was starting to get pretty good at, you know, how to design a consumer experience, how to optimize a consumer experience. I was starting to understand funnels pretty well. Uh, but I, but I, what I re- really wanted to do is I wanted to understand how to take, you know, this, this skill set and apply it to a space that I cared a lot about. And for me, that was healthcare. Um, I got really interested in healthcare early, early age. Um, you know, my father was a diabetic. He, um, he had his first triple bypass surgery when he was in his early, early forties. Wow. Uh, so way, way, way too young for something like that to happen. And I still remember when we left the hospital, uh, you know, we were given a sheet of paper 
And this sheet of paper was was basically what they called lifestyle modification. Mm-hmm. You know, it was how to exercise and how to eat. And uh, and it was and it was and it was very clear that everybody got this same sheet of paper, right? It was it wasn't customized at all. So if you looked at it from our point of view, it was like you know, eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. Well, you know, we're we're an Indian family. We don't we don't right. we didn't eat broccoli. We didn't eat Brussels sprouts. And there was nothing on that sheet about you know chicken korma, you know, and or dal. And right. so we kind of had to figure out how to how to adjust and customize our lifestyle in a way that was going to make my father healthy. And what, what ended up happening was that because insurance kicked in, we were able to afford having a personal nutritionist work with us. And it really did change everything for us because now it, was, it wasn't all about sort of the, the, the you know, one size fits all diet. It was like, what do you, what's your lifestyle? What time do you come back from work? What time do you eat? What time do you go to sleep? What's your exercise regimen? What types of food do you like? What types of food do you not like? Because if you can customize that level, you can create something that sticks. Most diets fail. The average dieter will diet three to five times in a given year and fail. Um, so, but if you can find something that's customizable, it has a much higher likelihood of success. So again, we were lucky because insurance covered that for us. And my father got into significantly better health. In fact, mm-hmm. doctors had given him like five years to live. It's been nearly 25 years now and he's still alive and he's walking every day and he's healthy and, and, and Great. it's all because of that experience. So long story, but but the reason that I started Rise was because I wanted to figure out, can we take that same level of attention, that same level of care, and could we bring it down to a price point that was affordable enough for everyone? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's really cool. And um, diet is, is it's such a hot thing, right? With everyone, I mean, it's always a, the trending topic. There's always a new one about this or that that's oh, going to yeah. help save the world, right? But, um, but it is interesting. Um, Obviously, it needs to be more about it. So you ended up getting acquired, right? Like with with one medical. When yeah. did that happen? How did that go down? Any highlights from that that you learned? Yeah, yeah. no. So one, you know, one medical is is just great. I think a great company that that I think is is it wants to do. I think a lot of great things um, and really wants to. I think do a lot of what Rise set out to do. You know, and mm-hmm. and ultimately that's taking something that that can be expensive, a level of care that can be very expensive and bringing it down to a price point that, that people can afford. You know, one medical right now is giving concierge level care uh, for a price point of less than $20 a month. Which, wow, that's which was, fantastic. Which was, you know, unheard of. And so, you know, they're, they're scaling city by city. Um, how it all went down is that, you know, I, I was very interested in partnering with, with One Medical. You know, I, again, it was, a, it was a cool company. We had, a, we had a same investor in Google Ventures. Google Ventures was a large investor in One Medical. They were a relatively small investor in ours, but still, you know, uh, a firm that we were talking to. And they, you know, ended up introducing me to Tom Lee, who was the founder and at that time the CEO of One Medical. I went in and met with him, was completely blown away shared my vision for rise he shared his vision you know for one medical and by the way this might be worth telling he shared his story for one medical as well which is that you know he was a physician and he was trying to figure out how to reinvent primary care and the way that he did it was he took very much a like startupy a tech startupy approach which is that he opened up one office yep. and he served as the physician as the nurse as the phlebotomist, as the front desk, he did all of that himself. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, and as patients were coming through his experience, he was surveying them on the way out and saying, hey, what could I have done better here? 
And then he would immediately take their feedback and roll it into the next patient experience. Mm. So he was doing almost this rapid iteration, but he, was, but, he, but he was applying it to, you know, hands-on physical brick and mortar primary care. And that's how he was able to create this, this system that ended up like blowing, I think blowing, you know, the rest of the primary care, you know, you know experiences out of the water. So, um, you know, when he shared that story and we, we shared our visions, we just, I think we just kind of realized there was a, there was a really strong fit. And you clicked and then ended up getting acquired. Congratulations on that. That's, that's no Thank small you. feat. I, I know what that can be like. And obviously the ups and downs of, of an M&A process. So congrats. Um, Thank you. So one minute, obviously we talked about one medical, obviously that, that whole process, I wish that there was more of that everywhere. So hopefully they continue to get everywhere. Um, it's definitely needed. All right. So you also then jumped into some government roles and I want to talk about those a little bit, a little bit of government stint. I want to see how that kind of worked into, um, you know, building up to this book. And then we're going to talk about the book. So give us kind of the, the high level about your, you ran, you ran, you ran a campaign and, yeah. and, and before that you were working with, with, uh, with the Clinton Clintons as well. So kind of talk about a little bit about your, your government background. Yeah, sure. Sure. So, you know, the, the high level is that, you know, I, I, I've been interested in politics for a very long time. You know, ever since I was a kid, I was knocking on doors for local, you know, local politicians that were running for office that I actually felt, you know, were wanted to do some good. And, you know, I just, I just felt like I wanted to be involved in some way. And I was, I was typically sort of in the background. I got involved, uh, you know, more in the 2004 John Kerry campaign and then 2008 for the Barack Obama campaign, both as a community organizer. So right. out in the field, knocking on doors. Um, but what happened was in 2016, shortly before the 2016 presidential election, I got a phone call asking me if I, if I wanted to join the transition team for Hillary Clinton. Um, so wow. the transition, the transition is happening right now for, you know, the Biden administration, um, or at least, you know, it's, 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 it's up and running and, and, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of uncertainty around that, but, you know, for the Hillary, Hillary campaign, you know, they, 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 they reached out and said, Hey, you know, how would you like to, to, to be involved in, you know, really building the new office of science and technology policy should she win? Right. And, uh, and, you know, at that point in time, I think, you know, uh, I think more people than not thought she was going to win, including me. Um, yeah. So, you know, election night comes my I'm living in San Francisco. My bag is packed and uh, and I'm the I'm the fly to D.C. the next morning. Again, she's going to win. Right. Um, and instead, that doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, we, most of us all went to sleep and we're like, oh, it's over. That's exactly right. And, yeah. you know, I remember my, my wife went to sleep and I, I, I'm watching the tide sort of turn. And, and uh, you know, I ended up so I ended up getting up the next morning, unpacking my bags. It was the shortest yeah. job I've ever had in my entire life. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, what now? One of the things that struck me was that my hometown, really literally where I'm talking to you from right now, mm. um, voted for Donald Trump. And it was a and it was a town that was typically and historically democratic, and right. I wanted to understand why. I want to understand what happened, and so I started spending more time here, flying back here, spending more time on the ground, and, and eventually I just realized, Frank, like if you know if you want to get involved, you know it's tough to do that from the sidelines. When we talk about this with startups all the time, right? You have to get out from behind your desk and you have to get into the field. Like you have right. to, you, as we've always said, get out of the building. I think the same thing is true in politics. 
I mean, you can make you can have you can make a difference from the sidelines. There's no doubt about that. And we need more people who are involved, even if they can't contribute full time. But I also think that we need more people who decide that, look, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all in and I'm going to really throw myself into the game. And and eventually my wife and I decided that that's what we wanted to do. So moved back from San Francisco to my hometown in Michigan and decided to run for office. Yep. Awesome. And and obviously that had to be a whole other journey, <laughs> you know, like to uh, hustle um, in, in a different, whole different way, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a lot like a startup, to be to be honest. I mean, you're 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 moving fast. You're 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 constantly fearing that you're going to run out of money. Um, right. You just a lot of a lot of the same things apply. I mean, it, running a startup is good training for running for public office. Okay, good to know. For anyone listening, it has yeah. ambition. Go, yeah, go Frank, for it. yeah, Frank. When you run your campaign, you know you'll, you'll have a lot to build. <laughs> I'm running for mayor. That's what I think. That's all I'm going to do <laughs> uh, someday. Right. Um, all right. All right. So let's switch gears. Talk about the book. It's, it's, uh, it's on its way. It's, it's in, it's in flight, if you will. We'll be out here, uh, February, 2021, which is very soon, right around the corner. Backable, the surprise truth behind what makes people bet on you. So let's, let's kind of talk about the premise of the book and what are the, um, you know, how did it kind of, kind of come that you decided, I mean, you kind of talked about it earlier, but let's just dive right into it. Like what did, uh, what what kind of spurred it was a big like aha moment. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, it was personal. I mean, I, I, I am not a naturally backable person, um, but some people are. I am not. Um, you know, I, I, I am a, I am an introvert by nature. Um, I, I have a tough time speaking up inside a room. Um, you know, I look sometimes comically young for my age. Um, so I'm not, a, I'm not a naturally backable person, but I was seeing people who were, and I wanted to understand what was it about them? Like, what was this it quality that they seem to have? Um, and can, could it, could it be learned, you know, and, you know, for backable people, when they go into these moments, they go into interviews, they go into presentations, they go into sales pitches, investor pitches, investor meetings, they, they tend to shine. They, they're right. these, we want to take a chance on them. So again, my 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 job with this book over the past few years has really been to unpack what that really is and mm-hmm. figure out, you know, could could it be learned? You know, so for example, you know, Lady Gaga had a record producer take a chance on her after she was dumped by Def Jam Records. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Bezos, classic story. You know, you had investors in San Francisco, a couple in particular, that decided to take a chance on him, even though he didn't really have a track record as an entrepreneur at that point. He didn't have any experience with book sales or some of the book business, but they decided right. to take a chance on Amazon anyway. So what was and it about? now he owns us. He pretty much and now, owns us. And now, and, now, and, now, and now he does. And so what, you know, what, what was it about these people? But really, to answer your question, I mean, the big, the big thing for me was, hey, like this idea of being backable it's not just for celebrities it's not just for ceos it's for it it's for the factory worker who needs a promotion in order to pay the bills it's for the mother of three who wants to re-enter the workforce today it's the airline employee who's just been furloughed it's certainly for the first-time entrepreneur as it turns out there's not a single person out there who isn't trying to become backable in some way especially now it's it's almost this skill set that has gone from being nice to being necessary that's a really great way to put it yeah and let's just d- dive into some of those um yeah. you know some of those steps that, that that are you know how do you become more backable i think there are seven of them in the book well so i'm going to start with the first and, and kind of work through them here with some questions so um the first one was you know convincing yourself that you're that 
that you should be backable, right? Yeah. So how can you do that? What are some simple ways to kind of turn it on and, and, and build your confidence, I guess you could say? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that really surprised me was that when I, when I, when I started interviewing backable people, I started studying backable people. One of the things that I, I thought I would see was a strong sense of charisma. And I didn't. I, and I was surprised. And especially when I started to rewind the clock um, and look at the way that people were when they first became backable, um, you know, I was not seeing this sense of charisma that, 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 we, that we might think we'd see. Um, so, for example, like go back and watch the 2007 launch of the iPhone, mm-hmm. which has now taken like this almost messiah sort of view of you know what happened because that speech changed the world and, and it did change the world. But if you if you go back and watch the speech, you might be surprised that to watch how Jobs actually unveils it. It's actually not a highly charismatic presentation. You know, he says the word uh over 80 times in the speech. Um, and it's kind of almost this rambling sort of the you know talk about what he believes. But but he he delivers it with with a high sense of conviction. Mm. And, and that's kind of the point, which is that, you know, the most backable people we know aren't necessarily charismatic, but they're but they have conviction for what mm. they what they want to say. And that's because they take the time to convince themselves before they go out and try to convince others. And the reason this matters, and this matters for entrepreneurs, it matters really for anybody, is that I think that there is a tendency, there certainly was for me, and I think there's, there is for most people, that when we get really excited about an idea, we want to go out and we want to share it with somebody immediately, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem is that if we don't get the reaction that we're looking for, it can crush us. Right. Because, because new ideas are fragile, and so are the people who are sharing them. So it's like, you know, what, what I have found that backable people tend to do is they tend to keep their new ideas to themselves and, and really start to kind of bake those ideas at least a bit so that they can start to develop conviction. They can start to convince themselves first. That way, when they go out and start sharing an idea with people, it's not like, a, it's not like an egg where if you squeeze an egg just a little bit, it can crack and the yolk spills out. At least in their case, it's a little more of a hard-boiled egg. So somebody can squeeze it and it might crack a little bit, but there's, there's something underneath. It's been boiled. It's been, it's been baked. And so that, that's the point. And in the book, I call this just scheduling some incubation time, mm-hmm. spending some time with the idea yourself before you go out and try to convince other people of it. Right. No, that's definitely interesting because a lot of times people, the first thing they do when they're excited with their ideas, they go share it and then they're like, whoa, You're didn't like, expect any, any kind of feedback. I thought that was the best idea ever. Come exactly. on, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And, it's, and, and, and the person you're sharing it with may not even be trying to be negative, but, the, right. but they're simply not as excited about it as you as are. You. I mean, right? Right. I mean my, my, this has like been a huge like, you know, source of like tension with my wife and I because like, you know, and it's funny. We laugh about it because like, I'm like, I, 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 when I have a new idea, I'm like, hey, you've got to hear this. And like, and like, you know, she's like, okay, you know, it's, that's interesting. I mean, she's supportive, but I'm like, why aren't you so excited about this? This is the best idea ever. And of course, she's not, there. Right? yeah, exactly. exactly. So yep. now I've learned even with my wife to just like, give it, give it a day, mm-hmm. put it down on paper, start to understand what it is that's exciting you about the idea. Give it a little bit of time, let it be a little less fragile and then go out and share it with people. Okay. That's great advice. And we're going to kind of move through the rest here because yeah. I know we're getting tighter on time, but um, 
but I could talk to you for hours, I think about this. So what does it, what does it mean to kind of send, you got this second step, which is, you know, casting a central character. What does that mean? in in kind of this whole, whole idea of um, being backable. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 the gist of it is that like we, storytelling is so important, right. And story, we, we, we continue to hear this over and over again, knowing how to be a good storyteller is very important to being a great entrepreneur. That's for your customers is your investors team. But I, I, you know, being a great storyteller, you know, in this context doesn't mean standing up in front of a room and saying like once upon a time, there was a, you know, what, what it, what it means is, is really being able to marry story with substance. You know, a great storyteller is able to do both story Mm -hmm. and substance. And I think those two things really meet in the form of a central character. Who is the person that you're trying to serve? What do they need? And being able to walk your audience through their story, through their eyes, is, is critically important. And yeah. what, was interest, what was interesting for me is, is being able to see how that changed investors' points of view. When, when people went in and pitched with the numbers, they weren't able to convince investors. But when they told a compelling story about who their customer was. I see it all the time. All the time. All the time. Yep. The, the, the classic one is Dollar Shave Club. I talked to Dollar, one of Dollar Shave Club's early investors, you know, Kirsten Green, who runs Forerunner Ventures. And, you know, the stories in the book and, you know, what she told me is that, like, she had no interest in investing in, you know, a razor blade company. Um, right. She looked at the numbers, she looked at the data and she was like, this isn't, this isn't for me. But when she met Michael Dubin, he put her in the shoes of his central character. He's like, look, there's a guy, probably a guy who goes to a Walgreens he searches for the aisle. And when he finally gets to the aisle, he's got to push one of those security buttons. And when he pushes the security button, an annoyed worker has to come in and unlock the case. And behind the case isn't just razor blades, but laxatives and condoms. It's like this embarrassing sort of intrusive process. And then he watches as he makes his selection, he pulls it out of the cabinet, and then he goes and pays for it. It's like, it just doesn't, it doesn't match what this customer is used to right now with sophisticated e-commerce experiences. It's night and day. And so when he was able to walk her through this storyboard of what the central character was really experiencing, that's when she was like, yeah, you know what? I really, I get this. And yeah. you know, that, that's how he ended up nailing his first, you know, few investors. That's great. That's a great story and great, great way to put it with this whole central character. So let's, let's move on to the earned, earned secret. What is an earned secret? How do you find that? And what's the, what's the meaning behind it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that's unsurprising is, is that, you know, people, you know, who come up with the best ideas are going beyond Google. You know, they're not, they're not looking up information from behind their desk, but they're really putting themselves out in the field. And I, I think that that ends up creating the insights uh, by which we create great companies and great ideas. Um, but what was interesting is that they also create great pitches because mm-hmm. when you can go out there and find something that most people don't know, an insight that someone doesn't know, especially the person across the table from you that's listening to your idea. Like, you, you know, we all think the world operates in this way, but did you know this is also true? Something mm-hmm. surprising. That is a great way of hooking an investor on the other side of the table. I, you know, I spent time with Brian Grazier, mm-hmm. producer who, you know, he's had, he's had over 87 uh, you know, Oscar nominations or 137 Emmys. And I'm like, hey, Brian, what do you like if, if you had to pick one thing that you look for from people who are pitching you on an idea? What is that? What is that one thing? And he said, I, I want I want them to be based on something that is not Googleable. 
I should not be able to Google what you are saying and get that information. It should be yours and yours uniquely. And later on, I heard Ben Horowitz say something very similar, but he used a different phrase. He said, I think the best ideas come from an earned secret. When you've gone out into the world and you've been able to find something that other people don't know. So the advice, the advice is, look, I mean, if, if, if your idea is based on stuff that could easily be searched and found online, then try to take it one step further. Go out into the field, talk to an expert, go, you know, go research something at a level that most people wouldn't take it to. And, you know, in the book, we, we, we give a few, give a few stories on how that's done. No, that's really interesting. And we're, I think we've got about time for one more uh, kind of quick one. So how do you build like a backable circle? I think that was something that I thought was interesting in yeah. building this kind of group around your army, I guess you could say. So let's talk about that real quick. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I got interested in this idea from a couple different levels. I, I took a trip to Bhutan after I lost my election. And, uh, you know, I was out there, I was hiking and uh, camping and I, I was, I've always been fascinated by Bhutan because Bhutan is the only country in the world that measures itself not on GDP, but based on what they call gross national happiness. Happiness. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So GNH. And mm -hmm. while I was there, I had an opportunity to spend some time with the team that is in charge of really collecting all this data and is in charge of sort of rolling out gross national happiness. It's been in place now for 50 years. And so oh. I asked them a question. I said, but it, when you're going village to village and you're talking to citizens in Bhutan and you're asking them questions and collecting your research, is there a single question, one question you can ask that will give you a high indicator as to whether someone is happy? And they said, yeah, there actually is. And the question is, if you were in trouble right now, who could you call on for support and know that with 100% certainty, they will be there for you. And what they found is that not only is the, you know, people having an answer important, they also found that the, the happiest people tend to have a circle of those people around them. They feel surrounded by people who they could call and know with 100% certainty people will be there for them. And what's interesting about this for me from the perspective of backable is that backable people tend to have that same approach with their career. They surround themselves with a circle of people, not just one. They don't, they don't sort of, I, 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 very few backable people that I met have one mentor. Instead, mm. they're surrounded with a circle of people. And what's interesting about the circle of people is that these people tend to play different roles. So there are four roles in particular, and I'll fly through these because I know we're running short on time. So four types of people that backable people tend to have in their circle. The first is your collaborator. I call it, these are the four C's, by the way. And the collaborator is, is, is what you might expect. This is somebody who is going to expand on your ideas. They're going to help you become better at your pitch. You can kind of think of like your time with the collaborator, almost like a musical jam session. You're riffing with each other. You're building on top of each other. So that's your collaborator. The second is your coach. And the coach is different from your collaborator because while your collaborator is focused on your idea, maybe your collaborator is focused on your business, your collaborator is focused on your pitch, your coach is trying to figure out if your idea fits you. So collaborators trying to fit, figure out if the, if the idea fits the market. Your coach is trying to figure out if the idea fits you. Like you, Frank, is this idea actually good for you? Does this, right. is this an idea based on what I know about you? Is this something that's going to make you come alive? So that's your, that's your coach. The, set, the third is your, is your cheerleader. 
And that's exactly what you would expect. Somebody who's going to build your confidence right before you go into the room. You're not looking to this person to improve your idea, but you're just simply looking to, for this person to tell you like, you're, you're going to do amazing. And here's why, like, you're great. Right. And you need that person. <laughs> you actually do, uh, right. especially in the moments right before you go into the room. But the fourth is the most important. And this is what I call your cheddar. And the reason that I call it the cheddar is because in the movie eight mile, Eminem is surrounded by a circle. And one of the people in his circle is always the person who's poking holes in his idea. And the mm. name of that character is Cheddar. Right. And so while everybody else is building Eminem up, Cheddar's always saying, hey, you know, I don't know if that's going to work. And here's why. And so you kind of, that person can be pretty annoying. We all kind of can get annoyed by that person, but they're so critical for making yourself backable because they're the ones who are going to point out the things about you, about your ideas, about your career that no one else is going to point out. And it's better to get ahead of those things before you get yourself in front of a room, before you get yourself in an interview, before you get yourself in a sales pitch, before you meet with an investor. Having those things, having those blind spots be pointed out by someone you trust is so important. So those are the four C's. That's great. No, I love that. And I think, so you got them right here. Anybody listening, build your backable circle right now. I mean, if you haven't already, um, because obviously you need every one of those components to get, get moving forward. So, and obviously to get support. So amazing stuff, Sunil, really appreciate it. What's the best way for people to get in contact with, with you or find out more about the book? Yeah, just go to backable.com. B-A-C-K-A-B-L-E. Here's a, here's the book. It comes out so, on February 23rd. February 23rd. You heard it. Thank you so much, Sunil, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, the book, I'm looking forward to reading the full thing and I've only seen a little bit of it. So I look forward to the book coming out and we appreciate the time here today with the startup of the year community and obviously helping us all to become more backable. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sunil. That was amazing. And I hope our listeners can learn something from your experiences as well as your insights as we're all out there trying to get our ideas in the world and we all need to be backable, right? So thank you so much for sharing. And uh, remember to go out there and get a copy of backable. It's out there wherever you, wherever you buy your books online or, or off. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes. And this is the end of our episode. Thank you again for listening. And uh, remember to subscribe to our show and please review it. We really appreciate all the reviews we get and we take all the feedback to heart. So if you have a startup idea and you want it to become backable, you're going to need to get out there and start it. And I think today is the best day to start. So with that, I'll give you time to do that. But don't, don't wait. Get that idea going. Get it, get it off the ground in some small way today and keep building and building and iterating. Till next time, I'm Frank Gruber signing off. Stay safe out there and be well. Thanks for listening to the Startup of the Year podcast. Be sure to subscribe and we'll be back with another episode soon. 